you're doing well today. For those of you I haven't met, my name is Dan King. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I get to work with youth and young adults around here. I don't know uh, exactly what book it was, but you were either the receiver or the giver. Uh, I don't think anyone will be outside these two categories, receiver or giver. You have either received a great bedtime story on a regular basis when you were a kid, or you are a giver. You are now giving to children or grandchildren, or maybe you've done some babysitting and you've read a great bedtime story. I've got to tell you, I brought some masterpieces, some classics with me today. By far, as far as the kids receiving goes, the rattle, rattle dump truck has got to be stellar. Uh, this little guy down here, I'm afraid he's going to rush me when he sees it. Uh, this is an amazing book. Anybody read the rattle, rattle dump truck when you were little? You know, it is an undiscovered classic. Some, I saw a couple of hands. I mean, for some of you, this was written in your sweet spot. Copyright 1958, all right? So some of you should have seen this when you were young. You may have just missed it. For others, this is, in our generation, this is, needs to be read. amazing. This is one of these books that's written where as I'm reading it to the child, uh, it repeats itself over and over, and by the end of the book... The kid is saying it with you. I mean, it's just that good. Okay? I mean, that is a masterpiece. I'm just going to kind of set that there as a masterpiece. Look at that. Uh, there are other masterpieces. Some of us are more into adult fiction and reading. Uh, and so I just grabbed, uh, we had a few box sets on the shelf. I grabbed Tolkien, wrote Lord of the Rings, this big. Any book that makes a noise when you drop it that loud has to be substantial reading material. And, and so it is, it is phenomenal. Uh, in the tradition service this morning, I brought out Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis's, a masterpiece that he's written. So there are masterpieces in all sorts of, of literature. And I wanted today, we're going to talk about um, a number of masterpiece stories throughout there, specifically one out of probably the masterpiece book of all time, and that's out of the Bible. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 today. And so if you brought your Bible, you can start thumbing through to find that. If you didn't, right around, maybe in front of you, in one of the, in one of the chairs, you bring it out, page 840. There's your cheater note for the morning, page 840. Uh, and, and you can look at the table of contents if you need to. And find the book of Mark chapter 5. We're going there. We are in a series called, What's Your Style? And it's a series that we've just been doing once a month. So about four or five weeks ago, Boom, we did kind of an addition of what's your style. Uh, four or five weeks before that, boom, we did another uh, series or talk in this series. It's kind of hitting about once a month, kind of an interruption to the book of Ephesians that Paul's preaching on, and it's on what's your style of evangelism. And we're walking through eight styles of evangelism. Last year in October, Mon Allison was with us, an evangelist, and he taught and shared with us that there's eight styles or approaches or methods or kind of bents to evangelism and sharing the story of Jesus with others. And so we're just kind of journeying through those. Previous today, we've talked about Philip. Uh, Philip, the story, he was somebody who was, uh, now I, I want to get, I'm going to open this because I want to get the words right here. He was a intentional evangelist. I heard somebody say it. Well done. You remember back that long ago. Uh, he was an intentional evangelist. He could share the gospel of Jesus with anyone, anywhere, uh, in a, uh, just amazing amounts of different ways. He's the kind of a guy that would be sitting beside you on the bus. 
and you're minding your own business. Maybe you've got a, uh, a headset on listening to some music. Uh, maybe you're, you're reading a rattle, rattle dump truck. I don't know what you're doing on the bus, but you're sitting there. He's the kind of guy that would interrupt, maybe pull out an earbud and say, hey, what do you think about God and Jesus? And when you said, what? He would take that as a question for more information and be like, well, let me tell you. And off he would be. A captive audience, right? Kind of a deal. That is an, just an intentional, somebody who's just intentional about looking for opportunities and taking them. Anyone, anytime, anywhere, Philip. And then we had Peter we talked about. And Peter was a proclamational evangelist. Somebody who proclaimed the good news. Uh, somebody who would get up in front of groups, maybe on a street corner, and set up a little bit of a box and sit there and, hey, I got a story to tell. And initially, maybe nobody's listening. But as he's proclaiming it, people are like, who is this guy and what does he have to say? And he would proclaim it boldly to groups of people. Peter, proclamational evangelist. And so those first two categories caught the attention of some of us. And we went, okay, maybe that's me. A lot of us, though, went, I don't think so. Uh, Today, I hope we're going to have a little bit of interaction going on this, on, this, on this guy, a nameless person, which I think is great. It's not Philip. It's not Peter. It's just nameless dude. Uh, or, yeah, I was going to say, or dudette, but it's definitely dude in the story, so we'll stick with that for the moment. Insert name here. That's the story and this masterpiece of his life that we're going to talk about. I've been out for coffee with a few uh, young adults and high school students in the last couple of weeks, and I've been reading the book of Ephesians with them. So uh, not only is Paul preaching on the series of Ephesians, uh, I've been reading it a lot because I'm getting ready for a middle school series at the middle school level in the next month on Ephesians, but I've also been reading it with a number of students that I'm mentoring and interacting with on a regular basis, and we'll read scriptures together, and then we'll talk about them, and Ephesians has been on the mind. So I was out with one individual this last week, and they were highlighting some of their their favorite passages in Ephesians to me, and in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 10, it it says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this individual I was out with said, I I love that. And I I referred to something I had made note of in in, in my Bible earlier on in years past, and it was that this work workmanship, this word workmanship, in another translation is, is instead printed masterpiece. And then as you go back to the original Greek language that the Scriptures were written in, this word workmanship or masterpiece was a term that was stolen from poetry. And one who authors a beautiful poetic masterpiece. And so, as it says, for we are God's poetic masterpiece, you could imply, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You and I, after we come into contact and Jesus kind of hijacks our life story and changes it, He rewrites us as a beautiful masterpiece for Him. Uh, In Hebrews, Jesus is called the author and perfecter of our faith. Again, this idea of authoring and poetry and story just captured in perfection. Jesus is rewriting the story of the guy that we're about to meet. Nameless dude. All right, you found page 840. 
you've rifled through table of contents and you're at Mark 5 now. Let's jump into this. I'm just going to read the whole thing out. I don't know what translation of the Scriptures you're holding on to. If you got it from in one of the chairs, it's going to be one particular translation. I've probably got another here. But we're all just going to kind of listen as we walk through this together. I'll read it out loud and you can kind of follow along. I'll stop a couple of times to clarify some things. They went across the lake in the region of Gerasis, which I just butchered, but that's okay because nobody around who lives there is here to hear it. Um, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, this man lived in the tombs, right, like a graveyard, okay? And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but tore these chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. You're starting to get a picture, as the story is told, of what this guy might look like. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. A little more of a picture of this individual. When When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God, which seems like an awkward thing to say to Jesus, um, that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, apparently already, come out of this man, you evil spirit. So then Jesus asked him, what's your name? He's referring to this evil spirit in this man that's taken possession of his body. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Well, there's, in the area that they're in, there's a herd of pigs that was feeding on a nearby hillside. And so the demons begged Jesus, send us among those pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave the demons permission. And the evil spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs. And then the whole herd, right, about 2,000 in number, rushed down this steep slope, some other translations say a cliff, and into the lake and were drowned. Okay, add that to your picture of what's going on. Floating pig carcasses bobbing up and down in the lakeside. All right. Those tending the pigs ran off, I guess, and reported to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by this legion of demons sitting there, dressed. In another translation, we found out that he was running around the tomb naked all the time. Mark left that out. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and, uh, and he's sitting there dressed, And in his right mind. And the people who came to see were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told all about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So as Jesus was getting into the boat, getting ready to, sidebar here, getting ready to take off, to kind of shove off into the Pigs bobbing everywhere. Can you imagine the guys and the disciples trying to row out? 
2,000 pigs floating there. As she's getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell uh, in the Decapolis, which was a series of ten cities in the area, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. We could spend a lot of time looking at pigs and demon possession in this passage, but instead we're going to switch and look at Jesus and the guy rescued by Jesus because I think that's a better place to spend our time. Why spend time looking at Satan and demons when we can spend time looking at Jesus and how he changes people's lives? So we're going to spend the next few minutes looking at this story from that perspective. This man who was interrupted by the author of life to have his story rewritten into a beautiful masterpiece that it became. But it didn't start there, did it? This guy was an absolute mess. Lives in a graveyard. Probably not a whole lot of shower facilities around there. There is a lake. Doesn't want to go in there though because his fancy bracelets are going to get rusty. So he probably smells. He's running around naked everywhere. He's got these chains hanging from him. Yelling and cutting himself with stones. So you can picture how this guy looks. Don't picture too hard. Um, and, and he's just a mess physically. He's a mess spiritually. He's a mess emotionally. People don't want to be near him, so he's a mess relationally. This guy is trouble. And I wonder if each of us in this room couldn't relate to him on some level at some point in our lives, if not now. For how many of us, some point, if not right now, have been absolutely a mess spiritually? How many of us, I wonder, have been an absolute mess emotionally at some point, if not still? How many of us have absolute mess in our lives relationally with people? How many of us physically are just a mess right now, if we were to admit it? I mean, this guy was a summary of who we are. Incredibly relatable. I was out with another student. Uh, about a week and a half ago, who was telling me about how she feels her life is a mess spiritually. And we talked about it. You know, expectations she had about who God is supposed to be and what God's supposed to be about unmet from her perspective. And so, is God actually personal and interested in my life? Or did he just kind of create things and start things up and head off to some other galaxy and has no interest in us whatsoever? I mean, head just spinning with questions and doubt. And we sat and we visited about the mess that her life is spiritually. Is this individual is a reader. So one of the books I gave this person to read was a book called Messy Spirituality. And she was thrilled that apparently other people are a mess spiritually as well and she might learn from some of them. That there was hope for her. There was hope. God intersected with her life at that moment 
and started to rewrite some things. All of us can identify on some level with crazy, naked tomb guy at some level. But the story didn't start with him. The story started earlier. And if we go back to chapter 4 of Matthew, it includes a story right previous to this of the disciples and Jesus crossing the lake that they're on. Uh, There's a lake that's about 21 kilometers long, about 13 kilometers wide. There's a lot of space that this lake takes up. And already in chapter 4, while Jesus is sleeping in the boat, a massive storm comes up. And the winds are howling, and the rains are coming down, and the disciples, the story tells us, are actually fearing for their life. And they wake up Jesus, and he gets up and demonstrates his authority and power, even over creation, by calling out to the elements and saying, be still and be quiet, and all of a sudden, the wind is gone, the rain ends, and everything is calm. And everybody's like, who is this guy? Could it be that even in that story, God was already setting this up? Could it be that God was already in the background saying, I'm gonna, you're heading the wrong place. I'm gonna kind of hijack your boat tour and send you in a different direction. And so he reorchestrates perhaps their navigation so that they end up on this rugged, hilly shore with a bunch of tombs in it. Because really, who sets out on a nice afternoon ride in a sailboat to hit the graveyard? This is not a place. It's like, okay, where should we head with Jesus? I don't know. Let's head where some people are, the tombs. No. God hijacks already their travels so they end up in a certain point. I don't know if you're taking notes this morning. Uh, they're in your bulletin, but there's the first point says that God is already, and in, in the fill-in-the-blank words, the winner words here, are at work around us. God was already at work in the background before they ever landed at these tombs. He was already at work. God was already working in crazy naked run around in the cemetery guy's heart prior to Jesus arriving. I mean, think about it. It's counterintuitive that when Jesus pulls up, the Son of God, who apparently the demons recognize, that they would run up to him and go on their knees before him. You'd think they would run the other direction. But something's going on prior to this story in chapter 5, verse 1, beginning. There's something happening in the heart of this individual who is demon-possessed that is leading him to the point where when he sees Jesus and even the demons that have possessed his body have recognized Jesus, that he goes to instead of away from Jesus. God was already at work. And could it be in our lives that God is already at work around us, in our families, at our schools, at our job, with our friends, in our own life, in our own mess, that God is already setting the stage, already writing the prelude, postlude, prelude, what comes first? Prelude. To this beautiful masterpiece 
that he wants to write into our life. It's an incredible story. And it starts even before verse 1. Well, the story continues, and of course we've read it, so you know as well as I what happened. But there's a point where the demons leave, and they go into the pigs, and they go off into, into the lake to bob up around and down. And the people who were watching what was unfolding, the ones who were looking after the pigs, took it all in and ran. And they ran to the countryside. They ran probably to their boss's place. They ran, I mean, this is a whole 2,000 pigs. That's quite an industry. That's quite an economic base for the immediate area. And they're going and they're telling people who are in charge of these things. They're running into friends along the way and saying, you're never going to guess what just happened. They're beginning to share the story. And they're not even the prime characters in the story. They're just kind of around it, and they're seeing this unfold, and they're going and telling what has happened. Because that's what we do, don't we? We tell stories. We live in an absolutely story-saturated world. You wake up in the morning, and if you're a business person, you look at your itinerary, and you've got a story mapped out for you for that day. You call it a schedule, maybe a schedule. But it's really a script for what you're going to do during that day. If you're a mom... You've got to drive here, there, everywhere. You've got a script for the day that you're going to have to work through. If you're a student, you go to school, you've got period one, period two, period three, period four. Boom. You've got your script for the day. We come home, we read a newspaper, and we read stories. We watch television, and we hear the news and stories, or we tune into our favorite program and see a story occur. We are saturated by story. And even when we're away from the daytimers and the media, We go out for coffee with our friends. What do we do? We tell stories. So these guys leave this happening with Jesus, and they do what comes naturally to you and I as part of the human race. We tell story. And people reacted. Now, initially in the townsfolk's reaction, it wasn't good. They were mad. Money into the lake, bellied up, dead. And so they came to give a piece of their mind to Jesus who had caused all this trouble. But then on the flip side, you've got this other guy, nameless guy, the one who's the recipient of Jesus' mercy and this deliverance and the God of the universe walking into his mess and beginning to rewrite stuff and add whole new chapters. And he gets to tell a story too. Now, by the time the people of the town get back, obviously some time has passed. They've got a new wardrobe for this guy. I mean, not only was his spiritual life, his emotional life, his relational life, and his physical life a mess, but the guy was also deeply in a mess fashion-wise. Okay, the birthday suits were not, I don't care when you're living, never in style, all right? These big kind of gaudy bracelets and ankle things. No, I'm sorry. It's just not a look. And so... Now he's dressed. One of the other gospels shares that he's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. So already, his fashion mess has been fixed. (laughs) Phenomenal. His spiritual life is being rewritten. Fantastic. Physical life, no, still a mess. It takes a while for scars to heal. Uh, Relational life, a mess. Well, he hasn't really interacted to bring reconciliation with his family. That'll come later and other people he knew. So that's still a mess, arguably. Emotionally, 
probably on the mend and moving in the right direction. It says that he is, they find him in his right mind. So that's already begun to be reestablished, rewritten, made to be closer to the perfection of the dreams that God has for him. But he wants to go with Jesus. He says, man, can I jump in this boat and go with you? And Jesus says, no. You've got a story to tell about what God has done for you and the mercy he's had on you. Um, the next, uh, again, if, if you're filling out stuff in the bulletin, uh, the notes there, uh, we've got a story to tell. And it comes out in verse 19, really, when it says this. It says, go home to your family, Jesus says to him, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. How about you guys? For each of us. I don't care whether we're exploring Christianity in this room today uh, or whether we've embraced Jesus as our God and our rescuer from sin. No matter where we're immature followers of Christ right now or whether we're mature followers of Christ right now, God is already doing something in our lives and has been doing things in our life. So what's your story? Uh, We could, we won't, but we could open this up and probably for the rest of the day, we could hear people share stories of what God has done. For some of you, it'll be salvation stories. God rescued me in this way. For some of us, it would be as recently as within the last hour or so. You'll never believe what God has done. We've got a story to tell. Without a shadow of a doubt, and it's way more interesting than Rattle Rattle Dump Truck. I'm just going to be frank with you. That is a masterpiece. But your story is real. And it's alive. And it sings of God's fingerprints on our life. We've all got a story to tell. And Jesus commissions this guy to go out and do it. And it's an easy deal. Uh, Who has never... Rather than ask who has, I'm going to ask who never has. Who has never ordered a pizza in this room before? You've never ordered a pizza in your entire life. Uh, during the first service, we had this dude, uh, this guy. I shouldn't call him a dude. I'm going to get in trouble now. Somebody's going to tell him I called him a dude. This gentleman named Jack Vincent. Some of you will know him and others it won't mean anything to you. Well, he was, he was brave enough to put his hand up and say, I've never ordered a pizza. Now, I don't know if he was just playing with me or what. He says he has problems with the whole cheese thing. But you know how it works when the pizza guy comes to the door. He knocks or he rings the bell or if you've got one of these fancy kind of pagers, he you're like, hello, and he's like, yeah, it's, it's the pizza guy. And you let him in and he gives you the pizza and then there's a kind of a financial transaction that occurs. And then as you take the pizza into the kitchen to set it down on the table, he follows you in, grabs a seat right beside you. You open it up. And he kind of takes up the posture on, onto the chair of kind of folding his arms. You've probably seen this several times, right? And, and he goes like this. And he watches you. And starts to get really irritated if you don't pop the lid and start eating right away. Because it's getting cold. He's driven it fast. He's got it there in a hurry. And now you're just letting it get cold. And so, I don't know about you, but often they'll give you a hard time about this, Right? And aggressively say, eat the pizza now, please. And these guys are like pit bulls on this stuff, right? No. If that has happened to you, it is wrong. (laughs) Report that incident. It is not good. Pizza guys come to the door. They give us the pizza. 
the financial transaction occurs, transaction occurs, and they leave. They don't watch over you and make sure you take and ingest this pizza in a timely manner and in the way it was meant to be eaten. No, 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 no. Put the fork and the knife down. Pick it up and put it in. They don't do that. You can eat it any way you like. And it's the same thing with this commission that Jesus gave. He simply said, our responsibility is to tell the story and let God do the rest. It's your line if you're taking notes. God does the rest. It's not up to us to see how people receive the story we tell. It's not a burden we face. It's not up to us to make sure that they think on the implications for their own life of our story. It's not necessary. It's very simple. We tell the story and God does the rest. And so these people who came to see what Jesus had done, they were angry. They were upset. But it wasn't crazy tomb guy's problem. It wasn't the problem of the people who were watching over the pigs and went to share the news. The reaction to the story isn't up to them. They were just telling the story. This man, as he went off to the Decapolis, a series of, of, of ten cities around the area in verse 20 of chapter 5 of Mark. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, these ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And they weren't amazed because of him. They were amazed because God stirred their heart with these stories. God was doing the work. Just telling the story. They were just telling the story. Um, So what's our story? This is how these things work. This is how evangelism, I mean these first two stories of evangelists, Philip and Peter we did, these guys were evangelists. You could argue it's a spiritual gift they've been given. There's places in the scriptures where it lists spiritual gifts. An evangelist gifted to do this is in that list. But we're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to be witnesses. Jesus says in his great commission that we're to go and, and tell others. Uh, before he, lets, he leaves with the, uh, the disciples in the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter 1, he says to them, you know, be my witnesses in. Tell the story. And so this whole evangelism witness thing is very, is, is very simple. It's, it's to evangelize or to witness, then is A, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. When God nudges you and says, tell your story, that you obey it's just simply cooperating with Him. Leaving the rest to Him. Cooperating and just obeying and telling your story. Uh, so, so evangelizing or witnessing then is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and others. We're sensitive to others and where they're at. And we share a story with them. If somebody says, hey, you should share your story. We give God the benefit of the doubt that He's working behind the scenes and we tell our story. So we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and with others to bring one or more persons one step closer to Christ. That's God's business, how it all works out. So here's my challenge for myself, to myself and to you this week. It's twofold. It's one, to consider, what has God done for me? 
What are the mercies in my life because of him? Hebrews says that Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. What is he doing in the story of my life right now that I could share? So that's the first half of it. Just spend some time thinking and reflecting. And the second piece then is like it. It's to simply then speak it out. Whenever you feel like God is maybe setting something up for you to share your story. And you give God the benefit of the doubt. You tell your story. I love, and I mentioned at the beginning, I love the fact that this individual in Mark is nameless. Because really, this individual in Mark is all of us. Somebody who's messed up emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, (laughs) maybe even fashionably. And Jesus walks in and begins to rewrite his story. He's not done when he starts going around the Decapolis to share it. He's God's still redeeming and fixing. But God is on the move. And things are changing. And he is obeying and sharing. And that's easy. That's simple. So if that's what evangelism is, and that's a style of evangelism, psh, sign me up. I'm that guy. I can do that. 